You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So uh, we're going to try something that we've never done before here at Stonegate because uh, everything's new. We don't, we don't know what we're doing. Here we go. Um, but we're going to try uh, today to do a type of sermon that up to this point we haven't done in like 10 years. Um, but we think it's a good practice, and we're actually going to try to do one of these every year, and that is a biography sermon of a person that's not in the Bible. Please don't leave. Um, I want to I I commend to you why I think this is a worthwhile thing and why I think it's actually a, a biblical thing to do. Okay, uh, two, two reasons come to my mind. The, the first is this. Uh, the Bible uh, commends heroes for, for us to have them. Right? That's what we just uh, read on the screen a minute ago, right? Hebrews 12, 1. I'll, I'll read it uh, again. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, look at these three words, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So, so he puts inspiration as a category that we as Christians need to have. There, there are humans who've gone before you who, who have trusted and treasured Jesus in profound ways, and you need to live in light of what they've done. There is a cloud of witnesses that we operate uh, in. So in light of their lives, you live your life. That's a biblical principle. You see that again in Hebrews 13, 7. This is, a, this is one of the graces that God gives the church. Godly men and women who've trusted him well uh, for us to pattern our lives after. So I don't know if you've had that category for like, it's good to have heroes, but it is. It's biblical uh, to have heroes. Uh, I, I think about my son, Ben, uh, when I think about this as a, a category. So we got Ben a, uh, a bicycle uh, recently. He's five a little aluminum looking bike and it's got the training wheels and he has absolutely wasted my money with it because he's done nothing. It's been the biggest waste of my time ever. Uh, but, but last week, my family goes over to a neighbor's house and they've got a kid who's Ben's age and he's whipping around on his bike like he's like a 35-year-old BMXer. It's amazing. And what happens? Ben turns to Kelly and he says, I want to ride my bike. And so he goes home and he's riding up and down the driveway now and he's trying to figure out the thing. He's in, why? He's inspired, right? He's inspired. He, he saw someone model it and now he's inspired to live it. So inspiration, we need heroes. Here's the second reason. Uh, the second reason is this. Um, biographies, Christian biographies in particular, have a way of electrifying theology. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like, um, it's one thing to learn a truth about God. And, and may we all be doing that all the time. It's another thing to see a person bleed for that truth. Does that make sense? It, it, it does something in the human heart to see the things that we sometimes just embrace in principle, acted out, lived out, held on to for, for uh, to the bitter end, like that does something in the human heart. It electrifies theology. So, uh, so I'm not just preaching like a, a, a biography sermon uh, because I want you to learn a new name. I want you to know God more. Okay, that, that's why we're up here. I, 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 I want you to treasure his character more. I want you to see it from a different angle. I, I want you to enjoy his promises in a fresh way. And I think that one of the mechanisms God gives us to do that well is through biography, stories of the saints who've gone before. It electrifies uh, theology. Uh, so my hope is, uh, having said all that, those are my, my two reasons for, for doing this, um, that by the end of this sermon, my, my hope is that this story in particular will inspire in you risky faith in a sovereign God. That's, that's my aim today. I'm, I'm hoping that we walk out here with, with a, a desire to take risky steps of faith for a sovereign God. Fair? That's, that's the game plan. How's this going to work? I have no idea because I've, I've never done this before. Uh, but I, I do know who we're doing this about. Uh, and the person we picked uh, for today is a woman named Corey Tenboom. Uh, does, uh, show of hands. We got a picture of her. Can we show Miss Corey on the screen? There she is. Uh, show of hands. Who has heard of Corey Tenboom before? Yes. Okay. Thank you, guys. We'll see you. Um, 
so Corey, uh, I, I love this woman. It's, um, it's amazing. If you know her at all, you probably have some of the, the big buckets of her life. Um, you know that she uh, was alive during World War II. You know that uh, she hid Jews to protect them from the concentration camps. They built like a secret room in their house. You know that. You know uh, they installed alarm systems everywhere to, to make sure that they weren't found out. They're, they're working like an, an underground resistance movement. Or maybe you know her uh, from her time she spent in the prisons or the concentration camps and just the horrors that happened to her there. You probably know a lot of that stuff. And I hope uh, that you know a lot more. And if you don't, by the way, um, tonight, and this is just for the folks in this room, obviously, because you can't do anything at home. Uh, we have uh, the book, uh, The Hiding Place, for sale in the uh, lobby out there. So uh, I don't know how many copies we have, but I would recommend you getting it. Uh, so those things about her we know, and we love those. They're remarkable things. But if that's all you know, uh, she can begin to sound a little bit like a superhero. And that's, if there's one thing I don't like about Christian biographies, it's, it's when they write them in such a way or tell them in such a way that, that they haven't given us heroes anymore. They've given us superheroes. We only have one superhero, right? That's Jesus. But, but we're allowed to have heroes. But sometimes they just, have you ever read like biographies before? And you're just like, that is so inaccessible. Like this guy wrote 150 books in his lifetime. You're like, I can't even get out of bed by nine. How is that possible that that guy, or like she cured polio when she was seven. You're like, how does this, how is that possible? That's how I feel when I read some of those biographies. They're called hagiographies. It means it makes them out to be like a saint, right? I, I, I want to help us see a real picture of Corey today. And I, when I read Corey, I don't read her like that. I think that's one of the reasons I love her story so much is um, for all of the remarkable sparkle around her life, I find uh, her to be very unremarkable as a person. And I don't even mean that as a diss. I actually, that's why I picked her. It's, it's, I think it's a wonderful thing for us to see uh, how uh, unremarkable she is. Uh, so that we can see that and hopefully, by God's grace, emulate what we see. Um, she's the youngest of four, actually five. One of the children died uh, at birth, uh, born to Casper and Cornelia Tenboom, April 15th, 1892. Here's a picture of the family. Uh, you have uh, Casper and Cornelia in the middle, and then around them, the four kids. Uh, Corey is standing next to her dad over there. Uh, next to Corey is Nolly, her sister. Uh, Corey, remember, is the youngest of all of them. Then Willem, uh, the son, standing up. And then uh, her sister Betsy uh, down on the right. So that's the, uh, that's the Ten Boom family. They lived in the city of Harlem, Holland, not New York. And uh, I always wanted to have a frame of reference for like where that is. Do we have a, a map image of that? Okay, so it's uh, just right outside Amsterdam. Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, it's a it's a beautiful area. I've been there before, and, and it's it's wonderful. Uh, right next to the United Kingdom, but on the mainland, uh, and they lived in this uh, house. So it's a house that's still there to this day. This is Corey Ten Boom's uh, residence. This is the house that uh, she grew up in, and, she, and it's this house. Um, that she grew up in. It's the same house that her dad before her was in and his dad before him purchased. It was in the family for over a hundred years, three generations, and it doubled uh, as a watch shop. That's why they bought it in the first place. The first floor is the watch shop where the family did their business. And then the floors above is where uh, they lived. If you want to get a sense of like what Corey did for most of her life, I'm telling a biography about a person who just made watches with her daddy until she was like 50. That's, that's, that's what she is normal, right? It's just that this is who she is. In fact, the most exciting thing that I could find about her life in these early years was in, in 1922, she was named the first woman to be licensed as a watchmaker in Holland. So hold on to your hats, kids, because it's, it's getting crazy. Okay. Um, she, uh, she never married. Now, this was uh, not by conviction. She wanted to be married. In fact, uh, she considered herself to be a bit of a romantic. She would read romance novels all the time, just imagine what it would be like to have a husband and a family. She had, she had one great love in her life, and his name was Carol. He was a friend of the family. 
uh, growing up with them and he was a bit older than her. And so as she aged, he uh, got to know her more and he noticed, and she noticed that as she was getting sort of of the marrying age, he took more of a notice to her and uh, was kind to her and paid attention to her. And this just exploded her heart for this guy. She knew this is the man I'm going to be with forever. One day, Carol comes over and she answers the door and he's so excited to see her uh, because he's really eager to introduce her and her family to his new fiance, Miss Van Veen. And the bottom drops out for Corey. And she's devastated. And, and, and she has a, a sense that uh, this was kind of it for her. She says in her biography, in some deep part of me, I knew already that there would not soon or ever be anyone else. That's, that's how she thought about this moment. And that would actually be true. She would remain single her whole life, as would her sister Betsy. Uh, and these two women, Corey and Betsy, would live with their dad. Their, their mother died when, when they were younger. Uh, with their dad in the Baya. That's the, the name that they call this house. It was on the Bartle Eurostrap, but they, they nicknamed it the Baya because who could say that, right? Uh, they lived in this house on the, uh, on the Baya with their father, making watches till into their 50s. It's normal, right? She, she wasn't a scholar. In 1910, Corey uh, goes and she takes two years of Bible school courses, and then she goes to the final exam and she flunks, right? And she won't get her degree till another eight years later, which you know, should give hope to some of us college students out there. Uh, Even even her appearance, by her own admission, constantly through the book, she just makes uh, light of the fact how how much of a plain-looking woman she was. She joked in her autobiography how her her waistline evaporated like well before its time, and that she just she just (laughs) would she just wasn't the type of person who turned any heads. And she knew this about herself. She was self-aware in that way. And so, and just in many ways, I hope you get this picture of her. That I mean, we're talking about. uh, a sweet, but very plain, very ordinary, unassuming, common woman. Now, what she did have was a spiritual greenhouse for a home. That she had in spades. And I think this becomes the difference maker in her life. So uh, she was raised in the Dutch Reformed uh, Christian Church in a family that y'all just genuinely love Jesus. I mean, if you've read any of her autobiographies or any, any works about, I mean, you just know, it's just the aroma of Christ is in this place. And it's almost, in my estimation, entirely due to the influence of Corey's father, Casper. I love Casper Tempum. I actually was thinking about just doing a biography on him because he's such a remarkable human being. Let me, let me just give you a little sense of him. Okay, this was a man who was as steady as the clocks he made, right? He, every morning and every evening, and I think that at the hour of 8.30, without fail, every day, he would read a chapter of the Bible aloud to whoever was present. In the morning, one chapter of scripture. The evening, come 8.30, one chapter of scripture. And do a little devotional right there. It didn't matter if no one was in the house, if everybody was in the house, they had guests over, it was just the family. He would always do this. In fact, he was so committed to this that even uh, in just a, a few years, once, once they get arrested as a family in the jail, he opens up the little Bible and does a devo there sitting with his family. Like this is how rock solid committed this man is to the word of God. And I love that. And I admire that about him. He was also a a man full of compassion for the least of these. Uh, Little kids loved Casper Tenboom. Like Corey would talk about it in her book, they would just flock to him like he's Santa Claus, right? They just loved this man. He, he would always put people up in the house uh, who were down and out in the, uh, in the area they lived in. Like he was just bent toward compassion in his heart. If it was big in, in any way, it was biggest as it came to the people of God, the Jews. 
His heart was so big and expansive when he thought about the Jewish people. Um, this is, I think, crucial to understanding Corey's story, to, to get this piece. So uh, 1844, Corey's grandfather, Willem Ten Boom, uh, he starts a prayer meeting, a weekly prayer meeting at his house. And the only agenda in the prayer meeting is to pray for Jews who are facing persecution. That's all I did. Every week, week in, week out. Now, when uh, he ended his career at the shop and his son Casper took over, Casper didn't just inherit the watch shop, he inherited this role. And so Casper, just from the jump, every week, is, is having prayer meetings exclusively to pray for the Jewish people, he, he, to pray that the persecution of them would stop. Like there's just a burden in this man uh, for the people uh, of God. And I just what does that do to a home culture, right? Like to just, to just be walking down a hall and just week after week, you're just hearing intercession for, for people who are struggling and suffer. I mean, think about how that would shape you. This is the DNA of the Ten Boom household. And now it wasn't just her father either. And it wasn't just her grandfather. Corey's brother, Willem, he becomes an ordained minister when Corey's 24. 10 years later, so, th so this is 1926, give you some parameters. He will go on to write his doctoral thesis on racial anti-Semitism. Now, mind you, he writes this in 1926. Right? That, that's 13 years before the start of World War II. That's, that's 12 years before, before Kristallnacht. You see, like, it, it is so uh, in the DNA and fabric of this family to be burdened uh, for this issue. Uh, I, 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 I just want to stress this. So early on the, the Ten Boom household, there was just a profound awareness of, orientation toward, bent toward, burden for the Jews. Um, one story that I think uh, really captures this, it's one of my favorite stories uh, in The Hiding Place, is uh, this moment when Corey's trying to find um, a place for this Jewish mother and her baby to go. Corey and their house, they're out of space at this point. And a pastor comes into the watch shop and she goes up to this Christian pastor with the baby in her arms and she pleads with him. She says, hey, we're out of space and uh, there's a Jewish mother and her baby that, that need to be taken care of. And I can just tell you, if nobody takes them, they will be arrested. Is that something you'd be willing to step into? And he looked at her and he said, please don't tell me that you're getting caught up in this underground movement, Corey. Don't do that. It's not, it's not safe. Think of your dad. Think of your sister. This is what he says to her. And she, she continues to plead with him, no, please. And he says, no, like definitely not. We could lose our lives for that Jewish child. Just then, Corey's dad comes into the room, overhears the conversation, walks over to Corey, says, Corey, let me have the baby. And he takes the baby in his arms and he just looks at it and he looks at the pastor and he says, you say we could lose our lives for this Jewish child. I would consider that the highest honor my family could have. That's this family. And, and that is the, that is what Corey is being stewed in for 49 years now, I, I want to say two things here in light of that. The first one is to parents. <clears throat> so if you're a parent in the room, man, your job matters. I hope you feel that when we say as a church uh, the, the phrase parents, pastor, this is what we mean, right? Like, like love Jesus, and, and do it publicly, like in front of your kids and, and have, have convictions about things, man. And, and don't just like hide it in a closet, like let your kids see you wrestle and, and, and pray and, and trust and, and, and like treasure God's word and do that in front of your children. You know what my kids see every morning when they wake up at those ungodly hours? They see my wife on the couch reading 
some deep cut of scripture, Leviticus or Numbers or something. Every, every morning, this is what my kids see. Let me tell you, that has a forming effect on a human being to see that that, that is that much of a priority to you that you're going to lose sleep over, over this book. Maybe it should matter to me. I don't know, maybe it should matter. You, you have, no one in this church is going to have a more forming effect on your kid than you. And I just want you to own that. Jeff Garner isn't going to, uh, Rodney's not going to, no, no pastor up here is going to have as forming of effect on your child as you. And so, man, take it seriously, lean into it, parents, pastor. Now, the second thing I want to say is, I want to say something to those of us who are being formed right now. In some ways, that's all of us. Um, uh, but especially if you're younger, uh, I want to say this. We've been trained to want a spectacle life. Like, that's the, the best thing that a postmodern Western nature, uh, nation is going to churn out. People who want to have a life that is a spectacle. We have whole career paths now that we invented called influencers. I don't even know what that is, right? But it's on everybody's Instagram page. Everybody's an influencer. I don't know what, what's happening. But that, that's all we seem to think about. Like how many retweets can I get? How many, how many click-throughs can I get? How many views can I get? How much can I move up the ladder? I want to make a splash and make a scene. We just, we're so enamored with, with this thing, this influencing spectacle thing. And I just want to say this. If Corey's life teaches us something, it's this. Character isn't formed in the spectacle. That's not the place where God forms character. So be slow to want it because character is developed in the private, uh, in the quiet and the hidden, the forgotten, the mundane, the everyday, the I do this every 30 minutes type of moments. That's where your character is shaped and formed and molded. That's what we need to lean into. Don't squander your private years by plotting how to make your life a spectacle. That's a way to waste your life. It, it just doesn't matter. Cultivate faithfulness in the little moments. That's for younger people, but that's everybody in here, right? We need to cultivate faithfulness in the small moments. That's what Corey did. She was in an incubator, a godly incubator for 49 years before she came out and did all the things we know about her life, right? But let me just say, th those 30 years of ministry that are coming for her would not have happened if not for the 49 prior. It just wouldn't have happened. So please don't miss that. D don't chase the spectacle. Chase faithfulness. Okay, that's, that's our pit stop. We're back on the highway. We're going to keep going. Eventually, uh, spectacle does come Corey's way. It is May 10th, 1940. The Nazis invade Holland and they begin a five-year occupation of the country. In the end, Holland is going to have the second highest mortality rate of any country during the Holocaust. Did you know that? I, I found that out this week. Everything begins to change. All of a sudden, just on, on her street, uh, Jewish businesses uh, begin closing unexpectedly. Uh, families or members of families just randomly go missing. Money is replaced by ration cards so the Gestapo can dole out who can have what and how much you can eat in a given week or month. Jews are forced to wear the Star of David on their arms to identify them. And as an act of solidarity, Casper Ten Boom starts wearing a Jewish star on his arm too. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. In all this, as all this is starting to foment and, and, and grow, I, I just remember, Corey is not sitting there plotting like General Patton what to do next. That's, that's not what's happening here. She, what's about to happen is she's really going to stumble into her eventual underground work. 
So just continue to keep that in mind. So the, the way uh, it goes down, uh, her and Betsy hear a sound, glass breaking. They look out their window across the street. Uh, one of the Jewish shop owners is being broken into by uh, the Nazi officials. And they're just ravishing his place. They're breaking windows. They're stealing stuff. They're throwing things out the window. And there he is just left on the side of the road, standing there just awestruck, not knowing what to do. Corey and Betsy run out to him to check on him and see if there's anything they can do for him. And they realize, well, he needs a place to stay, actually. So they begin looking for a, a home that he could go to. And that's really, I mean, that's, that's what I mean when I say they stumble into it. It wasn't like some scheme. It was like, this guy needs help. And I'm going to, I'm going to take this little momentary step of faith into this and, and I'm going to risk something and, and who knows what's going to happen from it. And that begins to snowball and snowball in such a way that by the end of it, Corey is like the, the leader of, of an underground resistance movement in Holland, which is just so bizarre because that is just so not how she is. It's, it's ridiculous. She's not that type of person. From her own mouth, she says this, my job was simply to follow his leading one step at a time, holding every decision up to him in prayer. I knew I wasn't clever or subtle or sophisticated. If our home was becoming a meeting place for need and supply, it was through some strategy far higher than mine. Isn't that great? Here is another lesson for us. A life of faith is is not built on a few grand moments of obedience. It is built on the back of a million little moments of obedience. That's how you develop the spiritual muscles to be a, a hero. That, that's how it happens. It's not, in, it's not in the three or four big decisions we step in. I think we think like this culturally. Like, we think like this with money a lot of times. Like, man, if I won the jackpot, I'd give $400 million to charity. I would take, I would buy, how, many, how, how much land does Stonegate need? Here we go, right? That, that's, that's what we have enough, by the way. Uh, that's what we say to ourselves, Right? If I had this amount, here's what I would do with it. But can I just say this? If you're not doing that kind of generosity already with what you have, what, what logic would make you think that if you're clingy with your money now when you don't have much, that somehow you would be less clingy if he put more in your hands? Like, that's just bad math, y'all. It doesn't work like that. Or even with evangelism. I heard this all the time when I was in college. You'd see a lot of these young guys come up and they're just like ready to take the whole world by storm for Jesus. And they, they can't wait to move to Afghanistan and share the gospel with every Muslim in the world. And, but I'm like, dude, you don't even share the gospel with your neighbor. It was, what, what makes you think that if, you're, that if you can't share the gospel with a guy who's just going to roll his eyes at you, that somehow you're going to share the gospel with the guy who's going to take your eyes from you. What, what would make you think that? It's bad math. A life of faith isn't built on just a few big moments. It's built on a million stair steps of small moments of, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I don't know. I'm going to take this step. Yes, there's a need. Yes, I'll pull over for this. Yes, I'm going to give to this. Yes, yes, yes. And, and eventually you look up and your heart is just outward bent. And you are full of generosity and you're soft toward people and you're evangelistic with your words. It's a beautiful thing, but that's how you get there. Not in the big moments. So soon, uh, very soon after this event, uh, Corey's home starts getting filled with just people, man. I mean, it's just a madhouse of, of people, Jews and members of the resistance hiding from the Gestapo. And it gets so crazy that eventually somebody comes and knocks on our door and they're like, hey, you're, you are so about to get busted. I like every, just so you know, everybody knows what you're doing. You need a safe house, girl. We're going to build you something. Okay, and, and within a few days, uh, they bring workers in and very slyly, they build a, 
a hiding place for these people who are coming in and out of uh, Corey's stay. I'm going to, I'm visual. I just need to see like what we're talking about. So I found a schematic of the house. We're going to put it on the screen for you. Uh, so this is, this is the property that the Ten Booms own. In the front, it says watch shop right there. This is where all the business is done. In the back is the workroom. That's where the, all the tinkering is, is done. And then everything else, pretty much, uh, is where the family lived. The kitchen's in the back, and the bedrooms are right above. And then way up there at the top, it says Nolly and Corey's room. So Corey lives in the room where the safe house, or the safe room is being built. Uh, right up there at the top. And it's, uh, it's kind of the perfect house for this type of thing because, it, I mean, I don't know if you know anything about architecture, but that's super weird. Like this whole, this whole thing's super weird. It's like on a, uh, it's slightly raised on half of it. It's like half stories going up. There's, there's these multiple staircases uh, going up to this room. And so it ends up being perfect for that type of uh, room way up at the top. And uh, uh, I think we have a picture also of the hiding place itself. This is a, a picture of Corey pointing to it. So this is in Corey's actual bedroom. <laughs> there she is on the screen. And uh, the way they built it, they, they fabricated an actual uh, additional brick wall. Uh, they made a little sliding panel on the floor in this little bookshelf nook area, and they would move the panel. And inside that space, uh, you could fit between six and eight people standing up. And it was brick, so you couldn't knock and tell that it was hollow on the other side. It was actually a, a wonderfully constructed thing. And that's how this whole thing went. And, and uh, because they built this, uh, they started doing these drills. These, like, uh, uh, we're going to make sure that we know what to do if the Gestapo knocks on our door drills. They install these buzzers all throughout the house so that if somebody knocks on the door that shouldn't be coming there, they can press the buzzer and basically, go back to the schematic, if you would, uh, basically, you have to figure out a way in less than a minute to get up to the hiding place uh, before the Gestapo came in the door. Now, they actually never, in all their drills, got down to less than a minute. It, it ended up being, I think, the best they did was uh, a minute 12. Uh, but, but, but there it is. And, uh, and they would run these drills all the time. And it was, man, it was, it was a crazy time. And it was complicated by the fact that their hearts were so big. They just kept saying yes to all these problem cases, right? So it wasn't just like they were picking, you know, like strapping young Jews who could run, you know, 20 miles an hour up the stairs, right? They were, they were, they were picking like Jewish mothers and their babies. How do you keep a baby from crying in a, in a safe room, Right. They were saying yes to a woman like, a woman like Mary Batali, who was uh, an elderly Jewish woman with asthma. How do you make an elderly woman with asthma run up the stairs in a minute flat? Like, you can't do that. So it was just really complicated. It was a very stressful time, as you can imagine. And, uh, and this went on for two years. Uh, just imagine how that would feel. I mean, that would be incredibly taxing on a person. Then, on February 28, 18, or, I'm sorry, 1944, what they had been training for, for those two years, happened. Uh, unbeknownst to them, um, earlier that, that week or even that day, uh, a fellow Hollander named Jan Vogel, who was secretly working with the Gestapo to get kickbacks for himself, he tipped off the Nazis to what was happening in Corey's house. And so at 5 p.m., on, April, on February 28th, uh, they break in. And Corey is actually upstairs asleep in her room, sick as a dog. She's got like a humidifier thing going. She's, in, she's sleeping. She hears the buzzer. She thinks it's a dream. She opens her eyes. She sees people scrambling into her room, pulling back the door, going to the safe house. She's like, this isn't, we didn't, this isn't a drill, is it? You know, it's one, two, three, four, five. Mary finally gets in. There's six people that slide into uh, the, the uh, secret room uh, before the panel shuts. And then all of a sudden, the Gestapo are in a room and they're questioning her. I mean, it is just the most intense moment you can imagine. And, and the, the thing just devolves and devolves to the point where by the end of that day, Corey, Casper, her father, Betsy, her entire family, and most of their close associates are arrested by the Nazis. 35 people are arrested that day. And this sort of closes the chapter on this era of Corey's life. Casper and Betsy would never see their house again. All told, 
Corey and her family helped save the lives of over 600 people from Nazi death camps. Isn't that amazing? Including the six people they were hiding in the secret room that night. They were never found by the Gestapo, even though they knew they were there. <clears throat> this is where Corey's story pivots. We're moving into a much darker bit of terrain. Ten days after the arrest, her dad, Casper, dies in prison. They offer to let him go home. And he says to the Gestapo, just so you know, if you let me go home, I'm going to open my door to any man who needs my help. And they kept him and he died 10 days later. Corey and Betsy are taken to Schwenningen prison for three months. Corey spends most of that time in solitary confinement. They are then transferred to Wuft concentration camp in Holland. And then finally, after a three day and night nightmare boxcar train ride from hell, they wind up at Ravensbrück concentration camp just outside Berlin, Germany. It's a concentration camp for women uh, there in Germany. This is as close to hell on earth as you could find. Humiliating strip searches by male guards, malnutrition, putrid, overflowing toilets, regular beatings and floggings, medical experiments done on the prisoners, flea-infested living quarters. She said at one point it looked like her mattress itself was squirming. 4.30 a.m. call times outside in the snow and the ice and the cold with little to no clothes on. In the end, it's estimated that between 30 and 90,000 women die at Ravensbrück. And in three months, Corey's sister Betsy would be one of them. This is the darkest part of her story, but... Um, in a strange way, it's also the most precious part of our story. Because it's in that darkness that God puts on, his, puts on display his love. Uh, two stories to illustrate this. At some point after her arrest, Corey's given up a Bible, a little Bible. And this is everything to her. I mean, it, it, um, it, at one point she has... Um, a version of the, the scriptures in the, uh, uh, in the earliest prison and when she's in isolation and she skips a meal just so she can read it. She is, a, she is a devourer of the word of God. So she has this Bible and she somehow is able to make it with this Bible to the subsequent camps. And then she arrives at Ravensbrück and she knows what's coming. They're going to strip you down. They're going to burn your stuff. And then you're going to go through a frisking twice before you get to the barracks. So she knows what's coming and she knows in some ways the jig is up. What, what am I going to do? So she stashes the Bible uh, in this place she finds by happenstance on the other side of checkpoint one. And that allows her to, to make it through the first of sort of the obstacles, but now she has it again and she's got two more screenings to go through. And I mean, what do you do here? And I, I remember reading uh, in the book, she said uh, about this moment that uh, she grabbed her Bible, she put it into her shirt, tried to smooth it down. It wasn't helping at all, of course. It was bulging and, and, and she just thought to herself, this is it. I'm going to have to walk out there and go through these screenings. And yet as she walked, she said to herself, but this isn't my problem, I realized. As I walk, this is God's thing to deal with. If he got me the Bible this far, why would he not take me the rest of the way? And so just in that little step of faith, she walks. She just starts taking steps out. And she says in the book, I'm watching it happen. The woman right in front of me is frisked three times. The woman behind me, Betsy, my sister, is frisked. And they never touched me. 
they never touched me. And she was able to make it through that and the second screening without anybody giving her a single problem. And she makes it to barracks eight. Story two, now she's in the barracks. They're finally there, her and Betsy in the same one. And it's, I mean, it's a nightmare. It's overcrowded. It's filthy. Like I said, the mattresses are literally squirming with fleas. It is so bad. I mean, could you imagine, like, I'm, spe- I'm going to spend the next three or four months living on a, a moving mattress. That's the situation that they're in. And, and, and Corey looks at her sister, Betsy, and she goes, how, how can we bear this? And Betsy says, Corey, grab the Bible. Grab the Bible. She grabs the Bible. She's Let, let's read it together. They open it up to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It says this, rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And Betsy looks at Corey and says, let's just do what it says. Let's just start thanking him for things. And Corey's like, you're out of your mind, but okay, here we go. Uh, they start praying. Betsy's like, God, thank you for getting us here safely. Corey's like, yes, thank you. That's good, I guess. Betsy, Lord, thank you that we have the Bible. Yes, Lord. Corey's saying, yeah, yes, I'm so glad we have the Bible. Betsy says, Lord, thank you for the fleas. Corey's like, thank you. No, what? I'm, no, I, I thought you said fleas. Uh, did you say fleas? You couldn't have said, you don't thank God for fleas, Betsy. That's not what you, I'll thank him for a sunrise. I'll thank him that I'm breathing, but I'm not going to thank him for fleas. This is the worst day of my life. Why would I thank him for I mean, she couldn't understand it. She thought Betsy had lost her mind. Time goes on. And uh, they begin to uh, read this Bible together in the barracks. And the strangest thing starts to happen. These women, uh, formerly disinterested, are now circling around her. And they're, they're reading the scriptures with them. And just like their father, Casper, every day they begin reading passages of the word of God to these women and things are changing in this place. Like these women, most of them who didn't know God, a lot, a lot of them were, uh, were Jews who had never heard the gospel or hadn't trusted in Christ. These women are trusting in the savior. Like in these barracks, they're hearing a story uh, about a man who can redeem not just this moment, but eternity. Like there's something better coming because of his death for me. And the, like the culture of the barracks has changed. They were once hostile and now they're start to be cordial and kind to each other. And, and the whole time they're doing this, they're never stopped. It was always a, a curious thing to them. They, they, would, they would have these Bible studies and nobody's busting in, no Gestapo, with it, nothing's happening like that. One day, Betsy runs up to Corey with just the biggest grin on her face. She says, Corey, I found out why the, why the guards haven't been stopping us. So we had this issue where we had this dispute over a sock and I wanted to bring a guard in and ask him about, are we sewing the sock right? And the guard wouldn't come in. And so we asked the other guard and that guard didn't come in. And, and I was like, why aren't you guys coming in to look at this? And they looked at me and they said, we're never coming in that place. It's infested with fleas. Fleas. Thank God for fleas. Do you have a theology that can thank God for fleas? Does your theology account for that? Can you, can you say yes and amen to your worst day? That's the invitation, I think, from this moment. Let me say it another way. What if the greatest good God wants to do you is not your physical wholeness? but your spiritual wholeness? What if that really is the greatest good that he wants to do you? Can your theology account for that? Can you thank God for fleas? Or, or does this Christianity thing only make sense to you when your life is awesome? Because can I tell you, it's gonna be a hard road for you if that's your theology. Life is hard and you need to anchor yourself to something better than just the American dream, y'all. We, ha- we have to be happy in God when there's nothing else to be happy about. Does that make sense? That's, that's what he's extending to us in Corey's story. There are, there are two ways to see this story. The first way is this, that Corey and her sister are tortured for a year in some concentration camps, and then her sister dies. And where was God? 
That's how the world talks. That's not how we talk, saints. The second way to see this story is to see God everywhere and realize that hundreds of women were able to hear the gospel and treasure Jesus and be granted eternal life forever in the darkest place imaginable. Thank you for fleas. That's the cry of the Christian. God is always working for your good in your suffering. If you're in him, he is always working for your good. Suffering is God's theater for his might to show off and your faith to show up. That's what suffering is. So yes, this is dark, but yes, it's bright. This is how we find joy in a hard world. My God is up to something. He's up to something in this heart. I'm going to hold on. December 16th, 1944, the physical toll becomes too much for Betsy and her body, and she dies at Ravensbrück. One week later, on Christmas Day, Corey is issued release papers and is free. She's free. A week after that, Ravensbrück kills every woman Corey's age and older. And they find out afterwards that her release papers were actually a clerical error. Less than a year after her release, Corey is busy, y'all. She begins work on a rehabilitation center for war victims. She writes her first of several books about her life story that June, and eventually she spends the remainder of her life traveling the world, telling her story to audiences. She is stopped only in 1978 when she has the first of several strokes that leave her paralyzed for the next five years. And she eventually dies on her birthday April 15th, 1983, 91 years old. Now, I've been thinking about how I want to close this. I've never uh, taught through a person's life before. This is interesting for me. How do I, where do we leave it? I think I want to leave it here. I want to leave it um, at, not here, at a place earlier that I want to I take you, rather. I, I want to... I want to leave it at a letter that she wrote six months after her release from Ravensbrück. She wrote this letter to Jan Vogel. Jan Vogel, the betrayer. Jan Vogel, the, the Hollander who helped the Gestapo and ratted her out, which eventually got her father and sister killed. That Jan Vogel, she writes them this letter. What does it look like to be shaped for 50 years in a greenhouse of godliness? What does it uh, look like to experience in yourself an accumulation of a million little yeses to God? What does it look like to know that your God is the Lord even over the darkest day you will have? I think it looks like this letter. I'll read this and we'll, we'll be done. Dear sir, today... I heard that most probably you are the one who betrayed me. I went through 10 months of concentration camp. My father died after nine days of imprisonment. My sister died in prison too. Listen to this. The harm you planned was turned into good for me by God. I came nearer to him. This is what I meant at the beginning when I said biography electrifies theology. Do you have a theology that can say that? I'm going to read that sentence again. Just remember the context of who this man is. The harm you planned for me was turned into good for me by God. I came nearer to him. 
that's a woman who knows the greatest good God can do her is to give her more of himself. She goes on, a severe punishment is awaiting you. I have prayed for you that the Lord may accept you if you will repent. Think that the Lord Jesus on the cross also took your sins upon himself. If you accept this and want to be his child, you're saved for eternity. I have forgiven you everything. God will also forgive you everything if you ask him. He loves you. And he himself sent his son to earth to reconcile your sins, which means to suffer the punishment for you and me. You, on your part, have to give an answer on this. If he says, come unto me, give me your heart, then your answer must be, yes, Lord, I come, make me your child. If it's difficult for you to pray, then Ask if God will give you his spirit who works the faith in your heart. Never doubt the Lord Jesus' love. He is standing with his arms spread out to receive you. I hope that the path you, you will now take may work for your eternal salvation. Corey Tenda. Ordinary woman extraordinary faith in a God who uses even darkness to show his love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, will you do that type of thing in me? In us, will you, will you work into us character? Will you make us not despise the, the day of small beginnings? Will you, will you cause in us a desire like Casper and Corey and Betsy had for your word? Will you make us people that lean into the little hard moments so that the big hard moments don't feel as big? Will you grant us your Holy Spirit in a fresh way to help us with these things? because we're weak and we're frail people and we're scared people and we're people who lack courage and we're people who don't want to step into challenge and we're people who like to protect our safe little selves and our safe little lives and our safe little families. And you say, lay down your life. God, make us, make us a yes to that. Make us a yes to that. So Lord, we love you. We need you for this. We need you to even help us sing these next songs to you. We love you, God. Stir up our hearts to sing with our might to our God, who is our hiding place. In Jesus' name, amen.